This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe plug-in hybrid is built for the best of both worlds. For the city buzz, for the call of the wild, for finding solitude, for sharing memories, for day trips, and for far-roaming adventures. Because with gas and electric capability, the Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe inspires you to explore more, to explore it all. Tap the banner to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist recommended facial moisturizer brand. From BBC Science Focus, this is Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Daniel Bennett, the magazine's editor, and today we're talking about the female animal. More specifically, we're exploring how the biological sciences can get it wrong when it comes to understanding the sexes. I'm joined by Lucy Cook, a zoologist, author and broadcaster, whose new book is called Bitch, a revolutionary guide to sex, evolution and the female animal. She also now has a show called Political Animals that's airing on Radio 4 and it's available on BBC Sounds now. Here's Lucy kicking things off by explaining what biology has in the past gotten wrong about the two sexes. Yeah, the, 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 book, the book's basically about how female animals have been marginalised and misunderstood by the scientific patriarchy. And really, there's a, you know, the, the revolution that's taken place in the last few decades in terms of us under, redefining what it means to be female and also the, the, the forces that, that shape evolution in the process. So, you know, I, I guess, you know, as, as I was a, as a student of zoology um, myself, when I, I was taught by Richard Dawkins, how females were bit part players in the evolutionary story, really, and that it was males it was the males where all the action lay. And, and, and in particular, there was one sort of universal law that was really drummed into me at university, which is that males will always be promiscuous and females will be choosy and chaste. And that's because sperm are cheap and plentiful and males produce gazillions of the things and females... You know, we just produce a, a small amount of, you know, a finite amount of energetically expensive eggs. 
So, you know, we sort of drew the short straw in, 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 the, in the lottery of life because, you know, but by investing our, our, our genetic legacy in these few small eggs as opposed to millions of mobile sperm, we were sort of doomed to play second fiddle to the sperm shooters for all eternity. Uh, that, that's, that's what I was taught. And this is a sort of universal law in zoology that prescribes the sex roles of males and females. And... You know, this this it's always just really bothered me, you know, because I was thinking, first of all, if males are promiscuous but females are chaste, who are all the males mating with? You know, <laughs> if it doesn't make any just like my the logic in my head would just like really hurt. Just going, oh, is it just a few strumpets that are having sex with lots of males? Or how is that how does that even work? You know? So you know, I this this universal law you know, alienated me as a woman and, and, and befuddled me as a scientist. You know, I just didn't really understand how it worked out. But that is that that's one of the kind of very entrenched paradigms of zoology is is that is is and it, it, it is this anisogamy theory, this idea that that because females produce a few nutrient-rich eggs and males produce loads of of mobile sperm that somehow that means that males will always want to mate with with lots of females and females have nothing to gain by multiple mating that they are they you know they're wired to be choosy and chase and you know this is true to a certain extent but it doesn't explain for example the licentious promiscuity of the lioness who mates hundreds of times during her estrus with multiple males doesn't explain that does it you know and and you know this this it, it, you know and 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 actually it turns out that females polyandry is commonplace in the animal kingdom and you know the, and there are and there are multiple reasons for that namely that the fundamental one is don't put all your eggs in one basket you know if you've got if you're you know if you're seeking multiple fathers for your for your eggs then you're you're increasing the likelihood of a of genetic c- compatibility so it makes sense but and then and then of course there's also females like the lioness or, or or any number of primates where the females mate multiply in order to avoid infanticide because males of many species are prone to to killing killing to young kill, killing babies yeah exactly killing young and they do so to force the females into estrus early and then they can mate with her and, and then they don't have to sort of sit around and wait while some other males genes are raised before they get a go so females mate multiply and promiscuously with lots of males in order to confuse paternity and that that theory was established in the 1980s by the anthropologist sarah blafferherdy you know, and she had to kick and scream and jump up and down. And, you know, it was a long time before she was taken seriously with that theory, which is now an accepted part of modern zoological thinking. We, we now understand that that's true. So that that's just sort of one example. And, 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 and the sort of knock on of that is that it implies that females are because they have nothing to gain from multiple mating, that they vary less than males and they're less variable. And this is the really pernicious part of this universal law because it, that's what implies that males are driving the bus of change and that it's male males are more variable than females. So evolution acts more on males than females. They're essentially more evolved. And of course, that's complete rubbish. But that 
is still something that that is that raises its head routinely that males are more variable than females and the males have more to gain from multiple mating than females you know i mean it these are and you know and, and you know the, the the scientists that I interviewed for my book who have fought so hard to try and address this you know this fraudulent universal law are aghast at how how much it, it sticks in the public realm and the only reason that they can come up with is is that the patriarchy liked that story so so this was biological blind spot so to speak it, it goes pretty far back. In fact, some of the blame lands right at the feet of Darwin, doesn't it? Well, I, you know, I hate to say so, but yes. You know, I mean, I, I studied evolutionary biology and Darwin was my hero. You know, he still is my hero. Even though I've written this book, Darwin is still my hero. He is a genius. He's responsible for one of the greatest theories in in science. You know, I mean, his theory of evolution by natural selection is 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 a brilliant theory. But it was. But the problem is, is that you know the thing is, is, and I think this was the thing that really shocked me when I started investigating the book. Is is that even geniuses like Darwin can't escape the shackles of cultural bias? They they can't. You know that they they you know he was a he was a man of his time. You know, and that time was the Victorian era, and in the Victorian era, females were lesser individuals in society. They were submissive, you know, they were, you know, meant to be chased and support their husbands and they, they weren't even capable of appreciating art. They had no agency whatsoever. And so this misogynistic culture became entwined with, with Darwin's science, which I was really shocked by. I, I mean, if if, if, if if someone who's as big a genius and as good and meticulous a scientist as Darwin can have his work polluted by, by cultural bias, that's, that's pretty hardcore, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't speak well for the rest of us, you know, because I, mean, I, and I think that's what I was just shocked by was the idea that science was so vulnerable to this. And that also it could take so long to redress that balance. God, I mean, the feminist revolution, you know, the second great wave in the 1970s, that's 50 years ago now. But yet these ideas are still clogging up the science of evolutionary biology. And I imagine there might, you know, there could be someone listening to this who might think, oh, what do, what do you mean science can be sexist? Science is just, you know, it just observes truth. So how can that be sexist? But there's a really great example um, early on in the book about jays and observing the behaviour of jays. I wonder if you could just sort of share that study with us and what they overlooked. Yeah, I mean, that that's the thing about cultural bias is it just you know, as I say, it made Darwin view the world through a Victorian pinhole camera. It, it, it just, it meant that he he looked at things with a certain perspective. And that continues. And other great scientists have, because, because he said that females behaved in this way and males behaved in this way, it meant that all the scientists that followed in his wake suffered from confirmation bias because Darwin said so. So, you know, of course, that's what they're going to look for. So, yeah, a really great example is a study that happened in the 20th century, anyway, involving pinion jays. And it was two ornithologists who've written, that they're like the world expert in pinion jays. They've written a whole book on pinion jays, and they are brilliant and meticulous scientists. And they, pinion, pinion jays are sort of social birds, 
And they they realise that there must be some sort of like dominance network that controls the the bird's social behaviour. Otherwise, there'd be chaos. So these this pair of ornithol- American ornithologists went looking for the alpha male. Dominance network must be governed by an alpha male. And you know th- this took some ingenuity because it wasn't really very apparent which. Which which of the the males was the alpha male? So they they tried to sort of incite territorial behaviour by by setting out tasty treats and 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 trying trying to get the males to fight over yeah, something. Yeah, they made some particularly good food for them so that they would. Yeah, some them. some oily mealworms or something, which sounded completely revolting. Yeah, exactly. But if you're opinion, Jay, that's exactly what you want. Anyway, they did this, and still they couldn't get the males to fight. So they had to they had to base their sort of their dominance network on what amounted to dirty looks, <laughs> which you know if you're a bird and you've got no facial expression, it's pretty hard to gauge. Do you know what I mean? So they'd be like, yeah, you know that that male gave that male a dirty look. Yeah, it was a it was a dirty look. You know, so and they meticulously recorded all of these aggressive, in inverted commas, interactions between these males. So they couldn't find any actual fighting, so they... they could, no fighting whatsoever, no fighting at all. And, you know, but, but they recorded all of these dirty looks and they, in, their, in their data and then they, then, they, then they tried to work out, you know, statistically, who was the dominant male. And it was just, it was just a mess. They couldn't really find one or, you know, and it just didn't really add up. Meanwhile... There had been some extremely aggressive behaviour amongst the pinion jays. There had been individuals that had attacked each other mid-flight and fallen to the ground in a mass of flapping wings and jabbing pecks at each other. But these were not considered to be part of the dominance network because the individuals involved were all females. And so it's all there in their meticulously recorded data all of these interactions, but they were completely disregarded. And instead, they wrote off the what was described as testy behaviour of the females as being an avian version of premenstrual syndrome, which I think they they decided to call pre-breeding syndrome, which was their sort of, you know, oh, those those females and their, their, their naughty hormones, their messy hormones, you know, just sparring with each other. And so they completely missed the point that, that, that females have a key role in the dominance um, network of, of pinion jays, but they just couldn't see it, even though the data, the beautifully, beautifully recorded data was there in front of them. They were blind to it. And that's why this, this sort of misogynistic bias is, is important to be flushed out because it, it just, it colours the way that we see the natural world. So I just want to kind of talk along some of the, the the books you know really beautifully divided into different chapters where you explore a different perhaps way that we've we've started to re you know see the the natural kingdom anew now that we're starting to take a closer look at what the, the female of the species does and one of them that I think most people would probably be familiar with is sort of mating rituals and um, we've all seen the Attenborough documentaries. They they tend to take centre stage, and particularly the one that that you, you seem to have a lot of fun with, and I uh, definitely enjoyed was the the grouse and their um what what the the, the sack slapping. <laughs> so so it's it's interesting because I suppose from one perspective we probably saw these as the males like sh- like you say being you know having their variety and showing off and being sort of floundering posy fellows but actually it's it's the 
the females to a degree that are driving this process. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, Darwin was absolutely right. Sexual selection is driven by male competition and female choice. And that still goes. But but it's it turns out, you know, he, he was at pains to sort of, you know, because the idea that female choice gave, gave females a certain amount of agency in that they were shaping the evolution of the male, that actually went down a bomb in Victorian England and and Darwin was ridiculed for that idea, actually. It turns out, he's right, female choice does shape the evolution of males. It does. But it's not just a question, and this is the one that you always get, right? Like, I mean, I on the BBC series The Mating Game that was on recently, I ended up screaming at the television set, literally, because it's like, oh, God, guys, you know, really, are you not, are you not up to speed with how things have changed? You know, but it's all these stories of daring do and swashbuckling look here's the males and their brightly colored feathers or their antlers and their horns and they're fighting over the female and and then they win that's the thing they win the female right by being the most beautiful or by being the most brutal and aggressive and dominant well this brilliant researcher gail patricelli in in the u.s who studied sage grouse for years and years and years and, and also bowerbirds are another one. Obviously, the bowerbirds make these sort of incredible males, make these sort of ludicrous sort of Salvador Dali-esque kind of creations in order to attract the female. Sage grouse, similarly absurd. I mean, I went into the mountains of Northern California and there are a few courtship rituals that are more bizarre than the sage grouse struts. I mean, they literally, they, they inflate this sort of throat sack and then slap the sack together and it makes these doink, 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 doink sounds and I mean they're like strutting around and basically body popping and it's like and it and they look so serious and it honestly it's hilarious I absolutely loved it it was just completely and meanwhile the females are just like round about just pecking away looking a bit desultory and bored apparently not paying any attention to the males at all as they're like frantically kind of going for it with the slap 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 doink 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 you know you know it seems like all of your Victorian stereotypes come to life you know the males are competing with each other the females are completely passive they're playing they're paying no attention so Gail in in an attempt to try and sort of decode all this she did an absolutely brilliant thing. She built a robot female sage grouse. <laughs> she just she got like a she got a dead sage grouse and stuffed it, and then using a pair of spanks and some robot stuff that she got off the internet, she built this robot. And then she drives the robot sage grouse into the let, and then observes what happens. Right, which is you know just absolutely genius. And uh, anyway, so she does all this, and what she manages to figure out with the sage grouse and also with the bowbirds is that it's not just a question of being the most fabulous or dominant of males that males have to the, the, the female is giving signals as well and if the male doesn't effectively listen to the female and respond and by adjusting his display according to the female's lead then he doesn't win the female at all you know so yeah, I think that's a very positive message, isn't it, really, is that it's not just about being the most dominant cock in the room. It's about <laughs> it's about listening to the female and seeing, you know, and, and that's the way that you're going to get to 
you know, get to mate with her. So, so yeah, it, it, what she sort of basically uncovered is, is that it's just a lot more nuanced than you'd think. And the females, rather than being passive, have a very active it's a, role. It's a that. two player game, <laughs> you know, and it's, which is very rarely presented. You know, I hadn't heard of because you mentioned the Bowerbird. I've seen those as well on numerous documentaries, and, and, and you, you always hear about the male and everything, and the bird goes, yeah, it's good. That's pretty good, but there's obviously a lot more to it that we that we again we're sort of uh, it's a bit of a blind spot, I suppose. That these brilliant scientists that you you feature been kind of shining light on, and that that brings me actually to a to another uh, something you've you've already touched on a little bit, but something I'd love to expand on, and that's this idea that female sexuality in the animal kingdom always leans towards chastity, while the males are just there to spread their sperm and kill and fight and whatever but you you spent some time with the scientist uh and and with some uh is it langers is that how you pronounce it langers, langers yeah yeah which proved that again that kind of having coming into with that mindset means you often miss the sort of the the, the bigger picture or perhaps the more detailed picture yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, this idea that females are, are wired for chastity and males are wired for promiscuity is really deeply ingrained in in sexual selection and, and evolutionary thinking. And it's it's not true. It's 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 just not true. Females have sexual strategies themselves, and, and more often than not, those strategies will involve with mating with multiple males. It's just that for a long time. That was just ignored. You know, it was completely ignored. In fact, a brilliant story about how this was uncovered and another one that highlights this sort of lingering, the, the, the sort of how, how lingering bias can obscure biological truth is Patricia Goherty's story, who she's this sort of amazing feminist firebrand of us. Of one of the most intelligent scientists I've ever met. She's just absolutely incredible. She, she she was studying, it was um, Eastern Blue Jays, actually. She was the first person to look at a clutch of eggs and use DNA fingerprinting to see how many, you know, whether they all had one father. So I mean, we always think of songbirds as being monogamous, you know. You know, you see the male and the female and they make the nest together and they tend to the eggs and everything. And she, what she discovered was that, 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 that a clutch of eggs routinely had more than one father. The only way to explain that is that the female whose nest it is is, is 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 mating multiply. When she revealed this at an ornithological conference in the 1980s, she was told by a very senior establishment figure, male, that, well, obviously that's because the females are being raped, because there's no way that the females would be actively soliciting male males, because we all, as we all know, females have nothing to gain from multiple mating. It's males that do that. And she was like, yeah, but just with songbirds, they can't actually, they, rape's impossible because they don't have a penis. They have, males and females both have a cloaca, which is a hole that the male has to balance precariously on the female's back. They have to both avert their uh, section of their cloaca. So it's what's called a cloacal kiss. So it meets and there's this transfer of sperm, sperm and eggs. If the female's not into it, she can she can call a halt to it at any time because the whole thing is so difficult to balancing act. This is not not an easy thing to to pull off. So the idea that males are are raping females is absurd. But that's what was thought, and it took another scientist putting uh, putting um, radio trackers on hooded warblers, in fact, 
And she found that that the the hooded warblers were indeed going outside of their territory and soliciting sex at dawn and and having sex behind their partner's back. And so that's how they were multiple males fathering a nest. And and, and, and that's now accepted that I think it's something like 90% of songbirds are socially monogamous, but not sexually monogamous, you know. And, you know, and, it, and that makes good sense. Patricia Goherty says, you know, why would you put all your eggs in one basket? So that's that's like one reason. It's a strategy. The females are not passive recipients of, of males spreading their seed far and wide. They've got their own strategy, and that also involves multiple mating. And then similarly with the languors that you mentioned, that strategy, females, Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy, she was studying the languors, and she went to study infanticide in languors, and then she found out that 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 the females were actually, males often kill baby languors when they take over a troop. And she found, to her surprise, that females were soliciting males for sex from outside the group. And, you know, she, she, she said, you know, from her in the late 1970s, early 1980s, she just, it didn't make any sense to her because there was no explanation for that whatsoever because that had never been recorded. But actually, it turns out it's a strategy and by mating with multiple males it confuses paternity and infanticide is less common and so these were all sort of struggles to have accepted and because of this sort of persistent idea that females because darwin said that females are chaste it's so fascinating because when you hear people when you hear biologists talk about evolution and natural selection it always has such a sharp edge evolution determines everything because it's what what is the best strategy or what is the best adaptation but then it seems like there's these blind spots where but when it comes to females, oh no, you know, strategies and selection doesn't apply anymore because you were of this certain nature that we've, you know, culturally decided. And so I think it's, it's um, the, the examples are so fascinating. And that, that brings me to one more, which I think is perhaps one of the most sort of pervasive ones, I suppose, in a way. And that's, that's to do with motherhood. It's probably, you know, I could, I could probably imagine, I've thought that in the past, that it's sort of, that motherhood and kind of caring is this sort of female attribute, that all females have some sort of tug of gravity that they must selflessly mother, I think. But that's just not, not always the case, is it? No. I mean, the thing to remember is that females vary enormously in their propensity for anything, you know. I mean, you know, and, and, and motherhood is an example. It, I agree, I I think it's something that certainly can be rather unhelpful to human females. The idea that we're all meant to be natural mothers and this maternal gift that we're given to nurture that that's instinctive in all of us. And and really, you know, modern research is showing that there is no such thing as a maternal instinct. There's a parental instinct that exists in all of us. But there's no, there isn't something specific as a maternal instinct. Now, that's not to say that some females aren't going to be more wired for nurturing than others. The same with males. Some males are going to be more naturally wired for nurturing than others. Do you know what I mean? There's going to be variation within that. But the idea that females are uniquely endowed from birth with some natural maternal instinct is 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 unlikely because it, it turns out and this is very recent research that there's basically there's a there's a nurturing switch in the brain it was found first in frogs and now it's been found in mice by um, Catherine Dulac at Harvard and she just that's a such a massive discovery last it's only last year she won this huge science prize as a result of of that discovery and 
basically, you know, she said it's literally like a, a switch that you flip. And, you know, like, so you have with mice, you know, your average mouse, be it male or female, if it stumbles across babies, it'll just kill them and maybe even eat them. But females obviously don't do that when they've given birth with their babies. And males can also be encouraged to start nurturing rather than killing um, if you buzz this bit of their brain, which is basically this sort of galanin neuron hub. And it's exactly the same in males and females. If you switch this hub on, the, the mice start nurturing, be they male or female. And if you switch it off, they'll attack. So it's Catherine Dulac's belief that this is the sort of this is the the central hub for for parenting, and it's exactly the same in males and females. Now, of course, in mammals, you have an extra females give birth and nurse their young, and that also involves releasing oxytocin, and that will soup up the parenting response so that it, it gives it like an extra boost to it. It doesn't. It isn't what triggers the parenting. Galanin hub, it's this, but it, but it, but it can amplify it, right? So that's why, you know, you 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 can get a sort of certainly the act of giving birth and nursing floods a female with with oxytocin, which is the bonding hormone, and and similarly with the young, and so that they end up bonding very tightly with each other. But in addition to that, there's this galanin hub, which Catherine Dulac doesn't know what triggers it. I mean, God, it'd be amazing to find out what it is. She she thinks it'll be a complex set of of, of environmental, both internal and external cues that will be the thing that switch, switches it. But I mean, how brilliant is that? Males and females both have it in them to be nurturing. I mean, like lovely. I think it's a great message. I mean, I didn't, you know, I, a lot of the things I found out in this I, I just delighted me. I was just like, oh, this is so great for humanity to know this. Do you know what I mean? There's a lot of lot of men I know out there who'll be like, oh, thank God, you know, you're recognised at last. That was Lucy Cook explaining how we're coming to understand biological sexes in completely new ways. If you'd like to hear Lucy and I dig a little deeper into our understanding of the sexes, check out Instant Genius Extra, a bonus podcast available via subscription on Apple's podcast app. Alternatively, do check out Lucy's new book, Bitch, a revolutionary guide to sex, evolution and the female animal, which is published by Penguin Random House in the UK and goes on sale Thursday. Thank you for listening. The Instant Genius podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine, which you can find on sale now in supermarkets and newsagents, as well as on your preferred app store. Alternatively, do come find us online at sciencefocus.com. See you next time.